Welcome to another edition of the InsuranceAUM.com podcast. The structure of the economy doesn't support this continued growth. These secondary markets make this private market liquid. It's telling us there's going to be a financial accident or recession. When you get in, you can get out. The biggest problems that we're facing today is the problem of inflation. It's too big to ignore. In emerging market investing, what's comfortable is really profitable. My name's Stuart Foley. I'll be your host. Today's topic is the impact of higher rates and increased volatility on insurance investors. And we're joined today by Cindy Beaulieu, CIO of Connings North American Operations and a repeat guest. Cindy, thanks for being back on. Thanks for taking the time with us. Sure, Stuart. Thanks so much for having me back. It's great to see you again. We are happy to have you. Conning is a terrific client of ours and the conversations are varied, but they're always terrific. So, I can't wait to get into this topic today, but I want to start it off like we usually do. And it's been a minute since you've been on. So if you can remind us where you grew up, what was your first job, not the fancy one, and what makes insurance asset management so cool? Well, I guess you could say I grew up inside the insurance world, really. My first job was a trader on the desk, trading ultimately every single fixed income sector of the markets over time. But that was inside an insurance company. And I was fortunate at that time to benefit from not only the management of a general account, but we had retail mutual funds and institutional pension assets that we managed as well. So it was a way for me to really build an understanding of what it takes to manage constrained money alongside of managing money that is completely unconstrained and very total return oriented. Insurance money's got total return aspect to it, but there are certainly a lot of things that make that much more complex and complicated to actually achieve. And so putting those two types of management styles together, I think really helped me to gain an understanding and really my whole knowledge base of relative value, taking appropriate risks, making sure fundamentals are fully understood before you jump into anything in both the fully unconstrained and and totally constrained management styles. And that led to me becoming a portfolio manager with obviously increasing levels of assets and complexity to those assets over time. And now here I sit today as a chief investment officer. That's cool. So what makes insurance asset management so fun? I think it's really the challenge of it. You know, one of the things that maybe before I even got into the industry, I'm an incredibly competitive person. I played sports throughout my entire time, all the way through college. And there is just that natural competitiveness that sits inside of me. And so I am always trying to figure out the next way to win and the next way to be successful. And I think with the constraints that are applied when you're managing insurance money, it makes it that much more interesting and challenging. And I I like to rise to that challenge. Insurance money can be a lot of fun to manage because what you get the benefit of is the ability to take all different kinds of risks. You just have to be ready to manage them appropriately. And you don't always get that same benefit if you're managing specific sleeves or or types of assets. But insurance companies are always looking for the next new idea and next new way to diversify their portfolio. And I think that's really part of what makes it fun. What sports did you play in college and in high school? Through high school, even before high school, I was a tennis player, had softball in the mix up until I got to high school. When I got to high school, it was a focus on tennis, but then a group of us got together talking about girls lacrosse, which was not something that we had in our town at the time. 
and developed that through the club level and took it to varsity while I was in high school and enjoyed playing varsity girls lacrosse uh, in high school, which was really exciting. So when I got to college and was again a varsity tennis player for all four years, that didn't seem to be enough. Imagine that with schoolwork and everything else that we still wanted to do something else. Again, found a group of girls and club lacrosse was the way to go. And that's now a varsity sport at my uh, alma mater, LaSalle University in Philadelphia. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So the last time we talked, we talked about January 2020. You had become the chair of Conning's Investment Policy Committee. And three months later, the markets were hit with pandemic news. And this year, um, you became CIO uh, September 30th. And about a week later, we saw an outbreak of potentially serious conflict in the Middle East. So your timing's been interesting, right? Like the old saying goes, may you live in interesting times. Can you talk a little bit about how these immediate crises help shape your management style? I think it comes back to, I've lived through a lot of crises and, and cycles over the course of my 30-year career that um, I'm looking at today. I think back to, you know, starting in 1994 was a period of time of extreme volatility in the bond market. The Fed had effectively broken something with a series of aggressive rate increases. And interestingly, though, it was one of their few soft landings that they engineered, something we don't think they're going to be so fortunate about this time. But you learn a lot from every single period of volatility, every crisis you go through. And I think back to those periods and I realize that there are certain things that you really have to take away from them. One, fundamentals are critical. If you're not doing your fundamental homework when you're investing, and this doesn't matter if you're investing for insurance or non-insurance assets, but it's really critical with insurance assets. Those fundamentals are done in a solid way that you can count on the significant majority of your portfolio can weather through most periods of volatility. So that is absolutely critical and important. The other thing is certainly with volatility and uncertainty has two ways that it kind of cuts. You've got the risks, but there's opportunities. And you can't let the risks overwhelm your efforts to look for those opportunities because those are the best times where you can really build some serious income into income-oriented portfolios like insurance companies. And you have to be looking for those. You have to do it appropriately, but you have to be opportunistic when these types of things come around. And the last takeaway I've had and has really been something that I've embedded as I think about these periods with so much uncertainty, stay calm. It too will pass. It may take a little longer. Some of these periods have been quite long. I think back to really the start of COVID and it feels like it's been three plus years of just unending issues of uncertainty and volatility in markets. And quite frankly, I don't think that that's going to end anytime soon. So stay calm, be opportunistic appropriately, but always rely on those fundamentals. They are critical in times of of challenges. That's terrific. And so you know, for a long time, bond markets experienced very low yields, right? Kind of a, I mean, very low for a long time. And nobody talked about inflation forever, right? And then all of a sudden, there was this rather sudden transition to higher inflation, higher yield environment. Did that surprise you? And at what point did you realize that it was less than an anomaly? So, from the prospect of inflation rising, that wasn't a surprise to us. When you think about the period we were in post-COVID, where you had no ability to go anywhere, 
but people still had money. And if they didn't have enough money, the government gave them more. So you had plenty of access to liquidity. And now you wanted to go figure out ways to spend it when we had broken supply chains. So you have that supply demand imbalance, which almost always results in periods of inflation. So that part of it was easier to see. What was not as obvious is how high inflation would ultimately spike the level that we finally peaked at. That was, I think, a bit surprising to almost everyone in the marketplace. But when I think back to kind of how we got to that place and you look at where we were for exactly that period you described, extremely low interest rates for a long period of time meant that people and corporations could be incredibly liquid. It was easy to borrow. It didn't cost you anything. You could run balances on credit cards. It didn't cost you much. And that all has flipped in the last year as the Fed has been so aggressive with monetary policy. But that buildup of liquidity for such a long period of time, almost unchecked, and then thrown into the mix with additional liquidity provided by the fiscal side of the equation, and then all the challenges on the supply side, you put that whole thing together and you see how inflation got to the levels that we saw back in June of last year. So that piece of it didn't necessarily surprise us in terms of inflation happening level. Yes, that that was a bit of a surprise. But you know, when we look at it now, we certainly think about the fact that it is going to be hard for the Fed to hit 2%. There are things that came out of the pandemic that are likely to be challenging to actually get back to normalcy. Some of these supply chain issues that developed have changed more permanently. The demographics of our workforce have changed and that's a bit more permanent. The deglobalization has certainly been a change and that in some cases will be more permanent. So when you think about the things that allowed us to enjoy such low levels of inflation for such a long time, you can start to check boxes as to the ones that have actually started to flip the other way and not in a temporary format. So it leaves you questioning, is 2% the right number anymore? We kind of think it might not be, but that is going to take a little bit more time to play out. Can you talk a little bit about how the inflationary environment of the last 18 months has affected your clients, right? So I think it's worth noting that Conning is overwhelmingly an insurance asset manager. That's what you do, right? It's not all you do, but your core competency is insurance asset management from soup to nuts, right? And you're very good at it and you've been good at it for a long time. When you look at insurance companies and the liabilities and how that the inflation has exposed them to that, what has Conning been able to do with your client base that when this kind of a change in the macro environment uh, happens? I think there's a few different ways to think about it. So as you mentioned, the significant majority of what we do is managing insurance company assets, and that's both PNC companies and life companies and all that sprinkle a little bit in between those two. And when you think about the PNC companies, they were immediately hit by the inflationary pressures because as they're having to handle claims, the replacement costs, the things that they're dealing with and trying to manage those claims are higher than what was priced into those policies when they went into effect. So that was an immediate challenge and that created some liquidity constraints for those PNC insurance companies. The life side, especially on the annuity side, it was a little bit about how quickly can you adjust your annuity offerings to stay current with the market and not lose market share to others that are moving more aggressively. And so there were some liquidity constraints on both sides of the equation. But one of the things that is core to how we think about managing insurance assets is working with all of our clients on strategic asset allocation. 
And that is not a kind of set it and forget it strategy. You have to be consistently updating that as new developments arise. And certainly inflation and the rise in interest rates are two things that factor into those models. And so over the last couple of years, we have worked very closely with our clients to make sure that either the strategic asset allocation we developed is still correct in the current environment, or if adjustments need to be made, we make those adjustments. And so I think it's important that we partner with our clients, we understand and really are able to analyze both sides of the equation, liabilities and assets, marry them together and come up with the right strategy for each type of macro environment that we are in. And at this time, it's one that is certainly very different than what we saw over the last 10 or 12 years. As difficult as this period has been, there's a lot of folks who are applauding higher rates, right? I mean, the insurance industry is like, yeah, I got unrealized losses, but I can earn a lot more on my portfolio and, I, and I'm happy about it. Can you talk a little bit about how insurance companies are viewing? Are they saying, hey, I can take less risk, less duration and still get the same yield? Or is it, hey, yields are higher, I can do better, and the risk profile has stayed about the same? You know, we, we've seen a little bit of everything. And I think that comes back to the fact that we manage assets for insurance companies that are on the very small side of the equation and then some very large insurance companies. And so the thoughts about risk, the thoughts about diversification, the thoughts about curve management get a little bit different in each case. It also differs whether we manage the entire suite of assets for that company or they have a multi-manager strategy where they've got one manager do focusing on one part of the market or one type of risk and then others doing other things. So it's been a little bit varied, but I think for the most part, it's been a welcoming of higher rates. I mean, we had income starved portfolios for so long and it's been all about how can I carefully take a little bit of duration risk to try and get what the curve is giving me because spreads weren't giving you a whole lot, but at least we had a relatively steep curve back when rates were lower. So you could take a little bit of advantage of that. That obviously went away pretty quickly once the Fed got going in their hiking cycle. And so that's changed the dynamic a lot. So, you know, the questions about duration, that gets back to some of what I was saying earlier. That SAA work is so critical. We set targets for those asset durations based on all the analysis we do of the liabilities. When you're managing insurance assets, you really have to be careful not to stray too far from that unless there is something that is just painfully obvious about where we're headed with rates that can be either very effective and, and helpful in building returns or can be really quite punitive if you get it the wrong way. But by and large, we tend to stay in that kind of 98 to 102 percent of those durations, but we can still manage that and take advantage of parts of the curve within that constraint. And that's what we've been really effective at doing. I think particularly over the last six months or so, having a barbell approach to this market is something that's been very welcomed by our clients. They can appreciate that you don't want to lose sight of the fact that there's a bit of a gift in the front end of the curve. It is very high base rates. And then there are certain sectors of the market that you can add that are high quality, short duration to take advantage of that. At the same time, because on the credit side of the markets, we have seen an improvement in balance sheets by and large, particularly on the investment grade side. You can take some longer duration risk with investment grade credit and get the benefit of those higher spreads in that part of the curve and you build in some nice income for a longer period of time in case rates do start to revert back, not to zero, but something lower than what we're seeing today. So I think it's managing all of those risks, if you will, and all of those 
you know, kind of risk tolerances and thoughts about the market into a way where we can be most advantageous for each of our clients, but very much consistent with what they want us to achieve. That's terrific. So Conning and others have encouraged insurers, especially small to mid-sized firms, to diversify their portfolios into what I guess is best called non-traditional or less traditional asset classes. And what I'm talking about here is CLOs, esoteric ABS, just as a couple of examples, and where appropriate trade liquidity for income. In this new environment, is that still your message? Are insurers that have already gone down this path still as supportive of those asset classes as yields have increased? And are you seeing a pullback? Yeah, you know, I think it comes back to the idea that diversification we view as something really critical to managing all portfolios. And insurance companies, I think it's even more important at the end of the day because insurance companies have constraints. Those constraints can change over time. They can have increasing weights, decreasing weights. But the reality is you're managing constrained, highly regulated portfolios that have to answer to someone other than just putting up really great returns. And so when you think about that and you think about diversification, you want to find new ideas and new ways to build out a portfolio. You know, one of the things that we're always challenged with is as the market gets comfortable with a certain subsector, sector, asset class, those return opportunities start to go away and it becomes more normalized. And you end up with a whole lot of things in a portfolio. When something goes bump in the night, correlations go to one. So having the diversification of those non-core parts of the market offer our clients an opportunity to have kind of a part of their portfolio that's not going to react the same way. And that's a good thing. And so I think that we have done a very good job of bringing these types of opportunities to our clients, getting them comfortable with what the risks are. And arguably, they're just different. They're not worse. And you get paid a premium for that. And I think what we have seen with our clients is a continued willingness to participate in these parts of the market as long as that premium is still there and they trust that we'll be the ones that can discern whether or not that's still appropriate. And that's what we've been doing. And I think, you know, at times we've been careful. AAA CLOs is an example. There have been times where they got really tight over the course of the last year or so, and they're a little bit less favorable when they get to that point because you've got other opportunities and short duration, high quality parts of the market. But when they back out, that's a tactical opportunity. So it's a stay the course in terms of wanting to have ownership to a part of the market and allowing us to be tactical about when the best opportunities are to pursue that for the benefit of our clients. And I think Conning has always been known as somebody who can manage core fixed for insurance companies with the best of them, right? But I think it's not maybe as well known that the platform also includes bank loans, CLOs, EM sovereigns, and corporate debt. And you've just added this year commercial real estate to the, I don't know what the right term is, portfolio of capabilities. Maybe that's, you know, or strategies, or solutions. I think it's more solutions in your case. Can you talk a little bit about how that model has been working for you and how you're able to, I think it's worth pointing out that you have serious capabilities to look at the entire insurance company, both assets and liabilities. Are you able to use those capabilities to, in a way, sort of data drive a suggested allocation? 
So it certainly in our SAA work, as you said, it, the importance of being able to analyze both sides is really critical and trying to figure out where there may be opportunities to fill gaps in different parts of the market, whether it's sector or asset class, that SAA work can tease that out for us. And that has helped us identify over time, as well as certainly watching trends in the marketplace and the development of new asset classes to determine where we think the best opportunities are that are consistent with managing insurance assets. And that's not everything. I mean, there's certainly parts of the market that we you know, haven't delved into yet, whether it's because we haven't found the right partner or we felt like those strategies were maybe a bit overpriced and you want to see them go a little bit out of favor. We've had reasons to step away from certain parts of the market, but certainly the strategies that we have either developed internally or the ones that we've brought on through acquisition have proven to be really beneficial to our clients. And it gets back to that diversification. You know, I think it is so important that we are constantly looking for new areas of the market for our clients. But what's really important as we look at each of these acquisitions is making sure that we can build out strategies inside of them that are consistent with how you think about managing insurance assets. That gets back to the bread and butter of conning. We know what it takes to make an asset work in a portfolio. We know what the accounting has to look like. We know what the regulators are looking for. So as we're making each one of these acquisitions, we are looking to make sure we can build out strategies that will be consistent with those types of guidelines, risk tolerances, accounting, everything you have to think about. We make sure we can come with strategies that really fit our clients. And that's, I think, what's made us so successful in bringing them on board. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, certainly you've seen insurers go out and find expertise they don't have internally, right? And I think, generally speaking, insurance company portfolios have gotten a whole lot more diversified than they used to be. And there's a, and low rates drove everybody there. But once there, the industry seems to be very capable in those asset classes as folks who have, have been there prior. And it's interesting that, I mean, several years ago, a survey was put out that said that if there's $7 trillion in the U.S. of, of AUM, about 1.3 of it was outsourced. And the CAGR on that, the compound annual growth rate, was said to be 5 to 6%. And about five years later, a survey came out that said that that number was now $3.5 trillion. And that the total number was more like eight, eight and a half. And I'm no mathematical wizard, but that's a heck of a lot more than a 5% CAGR. And so do you see this trend continuing for insurance companies as they're buying not necessarily riskier, but more diverse strategies? Do you think that's going to keep marching forward? We do. I think it comes back to just the way financial markets and financial products work. You're always constantly developing new ways to find returns. You're developing new ways to offer products to clients. And with that comes complexity. And with that comes the desire to find new ways to invest that money. And so I think that combination allows this industry to continue to grow quite nicely. You have a lot of people that are really dedicated to developing unique, complex products that really sell well in the marketplace. And as they do that, the only way to meet those attractive income streams, yields, however you want to 
describe it is to have some unique things that you can invest in. So I think that there is that growth potential to continue. I think what we've noticed over the last several years, we've been pleasantly surprised by is the continued outsourcing of investments to third parties. And you you thought maybe after COVID that there would be a bit of a shutdown with that. But I think in reality, some companies stepped back and said, you know, we've been diversifying our portfolio an awful lot over the last seven, eight, nine years and now feel like maybe we need to have somebody else manage this whole thing for us because it's just gotten a bit unwieldy. There have been others that have looked at it as we can handle the core. We've got the basic day-to-day stuff, but we need managers that can do other things for us. And that's been an area we've been successful with as, as well is actually bringing in clients for just dedicated parts of the market, like esoteric ABS and private placements. And we've been very successful with our manager Octagon with CLOs and different CLO strategies. So I think it's not as much as it maybe used to be about, do you outsource or don't you? It can be that kind of hybrid approach, like everything else these days has a hybrid approach. This can too, where you can really hold on to the core and look to add value on the outside with managers that have individual expertise. And just to go down that path just a little bit further, if I'm a CIO and I want to run some of my money inside and some of my money outside, and let's just say that I need full accounting, I need full reporting, you know, I don't even want to look at it. And I need to get my AM best reporting done and I need to fill out some questionnaires. And I need to get all that stuff done. Is that possible? Is that in your wheelhouse to provide that turnkey solution while managing some of the money's managed in-house and some of the ma- money's managed out-house? Is that possible to do out of house? Is that possible to do? I'd say it's 1-800-CONNING. <laughs> that is our bread and butter. That is our wheelhouse. We really pride ourselves on the ability to provide a holistic solution to insurance clients. And if that means we're only managing part of the equation, we can still do it for everything. We have the ability to take on the assets in inside of our systems for accounting purposes. We have the benefit of our insurance research group that's constantly looking at the industry and can offer insights and different things for those companies to think about, even though we're not their sole manager. We can continue to do that SAA work that's so critical to really thinking about how you manage the entire strategy and be strategic about everything inside the company. And we certainly support our clients through all the different regulatory and reporting requirements, rating agency reviews, audit reviews, all of that. And I think it comes back to one critical piece. There are so many people that sit inside of conning that started very similar to the way I did. They started inside an insurance company. So they got to really know and understand what it takes to not only manage insurance assets, but also understand how the liability side of the equation works so that you can really think about marrying those two and coming up with great solutions for our clients. Yeah, we share that. I actually started as the director of investments at Missouri Employers Mutual in Columbia, Missouri. And I've been doing this ever since, which is, I mean, when I joined Missouri Employers Mutual, I didn't know you could start an insurance company. I thought it was like, the dinosaurs are roaming around and there's like a progressive sign. Like I didn't know. And it turns out that there's a whole wide world out here. And I think, you know, one of the things I think that is so interesting about this community, and it is a community of investment professionals, is they are an incredibly bright, incredibly thoughtful group who's trying to solve a very complex Rubik's Cube of externalities that insurance companies face 
that other institutional investors don't face. And you either understand that world or you don't. And we're very happy to have the relationships that we do here. And no one's happier. I'd like to make a public service announcement. No one's happier about how hot insurance is right now than us. And we think that it's high time that this industry has received the attention that it's getting and um, high time that people realize how sophisticated this community is. And that's my editorial for the podcast. So last question, what's your outlook for 2024 for investment markets? You have a, you sit in a very uh, lofty perch as the chief investment officer at Conning. And when you look out, where do you see opportunities? Where are you cautious? If I can play CIO for a second, can you kind of guide me? Sure. I would love to say I have a crystal ball and that everything I'm about to say is exactly how 2024 is going to play out. But I, I don't own one of those. I don't rely on one of those. So, you know, we certainly do our best to read all of the tea leaves. And there are an awful lot of them these days that you have to really keep track of. But I step back and look at the macro situation that we're dealing with today, which is obviously rates a lot higher than they have been. It's been helped by a very aggressive Fed. I think appropriately aggressive at times. I think we're about to find out whether or not they were too aggressive. We do believe that there are those lags with which monetary policy is effective. And these lags are longer because of the distortions that happened because of COVID. So I think that there is still room for the impact of higher rates and Fed policies to be felt. And our thought is that that will come into play uh, in 2024. They're not winning the inflation battle just yet. They've come a long way, but quite frankly, a fair amount of that inflation was going to recede whether they did something or not. You had the supply chain challenges with that demand I spoke about earlier. Those two coming together needed to be drained out of the system, but some of it was going to happen naturally as people either exhausted the, the cash they had and or supply chains repaired. So yes, the Fed had to be aggressive, Maybe they've done too much. As I said, we'll see. But inflation sitting here today, you know, r- roughly around three, three and a half percent. We're not at the Fed's number. And they've even admitted they won't be there by the end of next year. So we think that that is also the base case for higher for longer, because the Fed has recognized and has repeatedly said that they are not going to be comfortable with changing their policy until we have a sustained movement lower in inflation back to their 2%. And they keep saying 2% target not changing that yet either. So that leaves rates higher for longer. I think one of the things that has been most incredible, and I think most people have really been surprised at the extent, is the resilience of the consumer. It is almost unbelievable how the consumer keeps finding new sources with which to spend money. And I think it comes back to some of what I said about how liquid the consumer was and the ability to finance just about anything under the sun at incredibly low rates for a long period of time. So that helped going into COVID. But in the post-COVID world, whether it's been the government handing you money or you've had the government telling you you don't exactly have to pay back yet the money that you owe, the combination of things have allowed people to spend a lot more money than we thought they had. Now we're seeing the other side of that. We're seeing the personal bankruptcy start to rise. You're seeing the credit card usage go up quite a bit. And you're also seeing savings rates drain quite significantly. So we think the consumer is starting to get tired. You know, we just got retail sales the other day. And that 
wasn't a terrible number, wasn't as bad as the market expected, but it was a deceleration from what we've seen. And that I think is the important trend, that deceleration. We've seen the deceleration of inflation. We're starting to see it in the consumer. We really need to see it in the labor markets. And I think that's the piece that the Fed now is shifting their focus to. The Fed has talked about having unemployment rise above 4% and we're not there yet. Non-farm payrolls are decelerating, but is it happening fast enough to the Fed's liking? Possibly not. JOLTS data suggests we still have an awful lot of job openings, about one and a half times the number of available workers. So you still have a tight labor market. So when you add that into the equation, it helps to understand why the consumer has felt so confident about spending money. But that's exactly what we're starting to see another crack in is the confidence of the consumer. Sentiment data is going the wrong way. We're seeing a decline in consumer sentiment and a rise in inflation expectations. That is also unwelcome by the Fed. Chair Powell has said one of the things that has allowed them in this more current period to be patient and careful with rising rates is the ability to monitor the extent to which inflation expectations remain anchored. As we are starting to see inflation expectations rise, that's a concerning event for the Fed. Now, it hasn't moved in a meaningful way and it hasn't been enough successive reports to see that that's really a trend. But I, again, I'm pointing to things that I think the Fed is watching very carefully. We don't think they have to raise rates again right now. I think, you know, at this point, the December move that maybe was on the table a couple of weeks ago, that's been moved off the table. Do they even raise rates again? I think that's a reasonable question to ask. But the thought of holding them higher certainly makes an awful lot of sense. And then we think because the consumer does finally crack in all of this, that you do have that mild recession next year. Mild, it's short in duration, it's manageable, and it doesn't mean that the Fed necessarily has to step off the sidelines if we're right about the extent to which that recession takes hold. So if we can work our way through that, there is the possibility that by the time we get to this point next year, the Fed is starting to contemplate taking a little bit of this tightening cycle out of the equation and starting to ease rates. But there's an awful lot to get through between now and then. And the one last piece of the equation that I think is really important and has really contributed to the rise in rates we've seen over the last month is the fiscal side. There's no question that we have had and continue to have an unsustainable path of deficit building in this country. And the way in which we are financing it, we've been able to get away with for a really long time. But as one, we start to lose our credit ratings because of our fiscal irresponsibility. And two, we start to run out of people that are as interested in our debt as they may have been before because they're dealing with their own domestic challenges. You can see why there's some concern about the supply of additional treasuries in a market that doesn't really want to take on a whole lot of that at this moment in time. And it's contributed to rates moving higher. Is it high enough to take the feds, you know, do the feds work for them? Well, I think we saw it's not sustainably higher yet. So that's not the equation that's going to get us out of another Fed move. But rates have definitely moved higher. That factors into the equation for next year. So as we look out to the markets, we still very much like some areas of the market that have really been quite supportive of returns this year. Now, I think structured areas of the market are really a great way for clients to add some different types of risks than maybe they've been as exposed to in the past. So we still very much like both agency and non-agency mortgages. We like esoteric ABS. There are certain collateral types where you can get some really impressive income streams for high quality assets and you can stress them. And that's one of the things that 
that I think is really beneficial about understanding structured securities and how they can fit into a portfolio is to stress them through various scenarios to understand how the cash flows will continue to work. And that that's a nice benefit for insurance companies to get NAIC one type ratings in structured assets that can fit a number of different parts of the duration curve. Away from structured, I think the next area of the market that we're focused on is investment grade corporates. And it comes back to the idea that balance sheets have really been been cleaned up quite nicely with all of the liquidity that was available for a period of time before rates really started to rise. That termed out an awful lot of debt. And so you don't have this need to come back into a market where there is so much higher rates to be contemplated and paying and the costs of that. So investment grade corporate bonds, there are some really nice opportunities there. You asked me where we're not feeling so confident about, that's going to fall into some of the more risky areas of the market in terms of high yield and emerging markets. High yield is kind of a tale of two markets. You've got double Bs, which are actually quite nice and most of them quite healthy. Then you get below that and the risks really start to get magnified pretty quickly. So there are areas of the high yield market that you can be tactical with, but the spreads haven't been quite as attractive to be excited about those. And I would say the same thing for emerging markets. Our call there is really mostly about valuations. We don't feel that valuations are compensating you appropriately for the risks that are associated with those types of assets. That's really helpful. We have covered impact of higher rates and increased volatility on insurance investors, and I appreciate you doing that. And I've got one, actually two, fun questions on the way out the door. So you can take either or both. Lots of our clients take both, no pressure. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten or given? And who would you most like to have lunch with, alive or dead? Wow. I work hard on these, Cindy. I do. Yeah. I work hard on them. Marty knows. I try. I do my best. They are good ones. I would say that best piece of advice, um, I'm going to stay centric to asset management best piece of advice was was a two-prong suggestion. Never let a good crisis go to waste. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, there are crises that offer opportunities, look for them. But at the same time, don't stop your fundamental work. Don't stop the core of how you think about investing and get caught up in momentum. Make sure that you remain calm, but be opportunistic. And what about who would you most like to have lunch with the live or dead? I think for that one, I would probably have to say Warren Buffett. And I go back to someone who has just had some incredible success in markets through many more cycles than I could even begin to talk about as we think about the beginning of this conversation. He's seen an awful lot and he's been successful throughout. And the one thing I actually also like about Warren Buffett is he can admit his mistakes and step away. He does not have a problem, you know, selling when things are are pretty depressed because he sees that the next move is to be even more depressed. So I think from the perspective of his ability to understand markets and risks across a broad spectrum is something that I find really quite intriguing and would love to have the ability to pick his brain a bit. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on. We've been joined today by Cindy Beaulieu. CIO of Connings North American Operations. Cindy, thanks for taking the time. Great. Thank you so much, Stuart. Thanks for listening. If you have ideas for a podcast, please shoot me a note at podcast at insuranceaum.com. 
Please rate us, like us, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Amazon, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name's Stuart Foley, and this is the InsuranceAUM.com podcast.